there. That should be on, I think. I should check it and make sure. I'm a big fan of not having a pulpit. But I have to tell you, the only problem with that is it means I always have to bring my my music stand up to the front. So let's start off. Um, For those of you who don't remember, we are going through the gospel according to Mark. Uh, College students who just made it back, yes, we are still going through the gospel according to Mark. Um, The good news is there's a pretty decent chance by the time you end next summer break, we might be through. No guarantees, um, but there's a decent chance, okay? This, uh, I believe, is actually the 68th week that we have discussed this, and that's with a few breaks for some things such as Christmas and Easter and other stuff. Uh, So if you would turn in the Tapestry Bibles or in your Bible, hopefully you bring your own Bible, um, to Mark, the 12th chapter. We're going to go through verses 13 through 17. And uh, to be completely honest... For some of you who've been around tapestry for a while, this sermon is going to sound quite familiar. And the reason it's going to sound quite familiar is because I've preached most of it before. And not in the way I typically do when I tell you that, well, I don't have to tell you. If you've been here for very long, you know this. I I do the same stories over and over and over and over and over. And I typically, to be completely honest, purposely come back to the same scriptures over and over and over and over and over. Um. But, see, Jesus says this, and it's recorded in a couple, a couple of different spots, and I preached a sermon out of Matthew on this, and I still think it's exactly what Jesus meant to preach, or meant to say, so when we hit it in Mark, I'm preaching the same sermon. So therefore, turn to that portion of Scripture, and uh, let's read this together. Starting at verse 13. Later... They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. One of the things I love about Jesus is uh, he's real. And I, I think, to be completely honest, in church, sometimes that word gets misused a lot. Um, I had a conversation with someone this week, and we talked about how quite often you'll hear pastors go, I'm just going to be transparent with you right now. And it always drives me nuts, because what that means to me is they've been lying to me, you know, the 30 minutes before that, before when they say, oh, I'm just going to be transparent. And and one of the things that uh, drives me nuts with that all the more is, if I have to tell you I'm being transparent, that I'm really not being transparent. It's just this catchphrase that comes out. And, and Jesus is not real in that sense. What I mean is he goes through the same type of junk that you and I go through, uh, only more so. 
And when Jesus was doing right things, what ends up happening is two groups that really don't agree with, with each other on much start agreeing that they don't like him and they just want to catch him. And so you have Pharisees and Sadducees who don't get along on most anything at all, always coming together and, and uh, trying to catch him. Because all they agree on is we don't like him. Now, if you're, if you're a fan of history, I'm not a historian. I am a fan of history. I love history. Um, if you look into the Reformation, you're going to find there are actually three Reformations that happen. And there's a good example of this uh, in that Reformation. The three Reformations are this. Uh, you have what is known as the Magisterial Reformation. The Magisterial Reformation is, is what we mainly know as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, that is basically Luther and his following, and, and a guy named Zwingli, which is just a great name. Zwingli, who is the, the founder of, well, founder's a rough word. He's the guy who is associated with the founding of the Reformed tradition. We think of John Calvin. John Calvin comes after Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli gets killed in what's known as the Peasant Revolt and all this fascinating stuff. That is the Magisterial Reformation, what we kind of call the Protestant Reformation, and that's pretty accurate. It's called magisterial because both the Lutherans, and they weren't really Lutherans at that time, and the Reformed, they worked with the magistrates, their nations, their nation states. Okay, so you have that, but then you also have the Catholic Reformation, which is a reforming of the Roman Catholic Church that takes place, uh, mainly from a guy named Erasmus. He's a, an amazing Greek scholar at the time. And then you had what's known as the Radical Reformation. And the Radical Reformation is what I love. The best and the worst of Christianity comes out of the Radical Reformation. Uh, and the saying at the time was that, that Lutherans hate Catholics and Catholics hate Lutherans, but everybody hates the Radical Reformation. It was that type of mindset of, I'm Reformed and I can't stand the Lutherans, but I'll work with them if we're going after the Radicals. That's what Jesus' life was like, was you had people who didn't agree on anything at all, except for the fact that they hated Jesus. So in this passage of Scripture, we have the Sadducees. No, excuse me, we have the Pharisees and the Herodians here. Now, the Pharisees were people who basically had said, hey, the whole reason we are not the most powerful nation in the world anymore is because we are not following these 613 laws perfectly. I do not know if this is true, but legend has it that the Pharisees were known as the people with the bruised heads. And the reason they were known as the people with the bruised heads is because if a Pharisee male was walking down the street and he saw a female, he would turn his head the opposite direction and keep on walking. And the, the legend is, is that they would walk into signs and such and hit their heads. They were all about follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules. The Herodians... Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to, uh, to know this. So just take a guess. Who do you think the Herodians were? I heard whimpering. People who followed Herod. Which one? No, I, no I'm, not, I'm sorry. I'm not asking you which Herod. That, is a, that could be a question because they're like a gazillion Herods. <laughs> it's like everybody there said, I've got a great idea. Let's name our child Herod. Um, no, I'm sorry. Which son said that? Was there a son that said it or was it you? Oh, it sounded it sound like one of your kids. I'm sorry. Yeah, they were people who followed Herod. Now, the Herodians cared about the government. They cared about following Rome because Herod got his power from Rome. The Pharisees cared about God kicking the Romans out. Do you understand? They didn't agree on much except for we hate Jesus. 
And so they use their hatred to form a trap here. And the trap is just simply this. Do we pay taxes or not? Now, the Romans, if you study Roman history, there's this whole thing called Pax Romana, which is Roman peace. And the Roman peace happens basically because the Romans beat the ever-loving snot out of anybody who messed around with them. And the Romans really didn't care much about what you did as long as you didn't cause trouble and their taxes were paid. That's it. Okay. A lot of times we think, oh, the Romans hated Christians because they followed Jesus. They wouldn't have cared. Okay, They would not have cared at all if the Christians had been willing to say, oh, yes, we follow Jesus, but Caesar is Lord. And that's where the issue came about was Christians could not say Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one in charge of us. Caesar is the one who owns us. They couldn't say that because Jesus is Lord. And that's why they were killed. Okay, Christians were killed because they were considered bad citizens by the Roman Empire, which is interesting. So these Herodians and these Pharisees come together to form a trap, and it comes down to taxes. Because the issue is this. If Jesus says, no, you should not pay your taxes to this evil empire, which is a reference to Star Wars, but this evil empire, if you don't pay taxes to them, the Pharisees are going to be very excited, but the Pharisees don't have a lot of power when it comes to weapons and such. And the Romans are going to be really, really ticked off. And when the Romans get ticked off, people die, and they die in terrifically horrible ways. The whole reason they did crucifixion is because it would last a long, long, long time. Jesus' death on the cross was really short. I'm not saying it was, was easy. It wasn't. Jesus could have had the most pain-free, easy death on the face of the planet and still would have been wrong because he had no sin. The horror of Jesus' death is not how long it lasts and how brutal it is. It's the fact that the Creator, the one who maintains all of creation, our God, was killed. But the way the Romans did crucifixion is it could last for weeks. Weeks. They were awful. So they, they come up with this, this question that both of them would disagree on and all they care about is Jesus is going to get nailed. So the question is this. Should we pay this or not? Now that is the denarius. That is the correct coin of the day. Denarius is the day's wage. Approximately what a... a Low-class slave, well, slave wouldn't earn anything, but excuse me, a, a paid worker would have earned for a day's labor. Do we pay this tax or not? And I love the way Jesus answers this question because he almost, there are a lot of times where Jesus asks, answers questions and it's almost like he goes, oh, goodness, people, don't you understand what the real question is? It's like he dismisses their statement. There's this wonderful story where Jesus has a woman caught in the act of adultery brought before him. And, and the, the, the people who bring it, and if I remember correctly, it is Pharisees at this time. But the people who bring her say, the law of Moses says this woman should be stoned. What do you say? Again, a test. Does anybody remember what Jesus does when they bring this woman before him? He doodles. We don't know. All we know is that he bends down and he draws it in the sand. I've heard lots of different stories. I've heard, you know, stories like he was writing their sins down. I've actually heard a preacher say, I guarantee you he was writing their sins down. I don't know. I like to think he was he was just drawing a wonderful model airplane. And the only reason I like to think that I don't know. Okay. Scripture does not say that Jesus drew a model airplane 
you know, what, 1,900 years before you know, the Wright brothers. But I like to think of that because I like to think instead of going, oh, these are your sins, don't say anything, it's almost like he's saying, what you're talking about is worthless. It's not even worth me dealing with this because it's just stupid. I'm just going to doodle. Jesus, over and over and over again, takes somebody's question and goes, that's the wrong stupid question. And he twists this. Because what he says is, whose image? Whose inscription? Caesar's. And he bases his whole statement over whose image that is. And they say it's Caesar's. And Jesus makes a wonderful statement, which is, render Yes, and so often we stop there. So often we stop at render under Caesar what is Caesar's. But that's not really his point. Remember conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and making them run right. Run right. Render under Caesar. Under, uh, I'm going to edit that out in the podcast just so you know. Okay, <laughs> Render under under Caesar, I cannot say. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and and to God what is God's. Yes, Charlie. Here's the great thing. See, asking this whole question, whose image, whose inscription is on this, is very, very biblical. Because at the beginning of the book. God describes the creation of humanity and we are created in whose image? Yeah. Now that image now may be tarnished. That image now may be twisted and bent. But we were created with God's image upon us. And using Jesus' logic of give to Caesar what has his image stamped on it and give to God what has his image stamped on it. Jesus changes the whole question. They're debating politics and he's saying how you're supposed to live your life. Now, this is my dad and you should be able to tell this very easily because other than the fact that he's working with wood at this time, my dad is a really good carpenter. Um, I look like my dad. You can see it from the profile if you look. Um, I'm a better fisherman than he is. My dad can't run a lick. (laughs) But I look like my dad. If you look at photos of him uh, from from high school and photos of me from high school, other than me you know, dressing like the 80s and him dressing like the 50s, I look like him. And, and so, what? I, yeah, he can't grow a beard and I cannot. <laughs> okay? To be completely honest, this is about as much hair as I can get. Um, I tried to play Jesus once in a, a church play that did not work out very well. They tried to to glue coffee grounds onto my face. Supposedly that was going to be the beard. Don't do that. (laughs) Guys, I look like my dad. And if you look at my kids, you can see my image in them. Jesus is literally saying, hey, God stamped his image on you. Just like this coin belongs to Caesar because it's got his image on it. It's got his inscription on it. God stamped. His image on you. So give yourself to God. So the real question comes down to, what does that mean? 
It's real easy to say. It's real nice. I have God's image placed on me. Problem is, is we have all these nice little things we say that don't affect our lives at all. That's not real faith. Okay, it's sentimentality. It's great for Hallmark postcards, these little images you can post on Facebook with a nice little corny image beside it. It's great for that, but it doesn't affect your life at all. And what Jesus says should affect our lives. Whose image is on us? So, I believe this is what's the result. It's what should happen. Therefore, now anytime you see therefore, as you know, because I didn't invent this, I just say it over and over. Therefore, you always look back to see what it's there for. If you read the chapter before this, it's talking about how we are grafted into the tree of Israel and God is going to save Israel. And those of us who believe who are Gentiles are grafted into that tree. We are made people of God. And the result is, is that we're supposed to give ourselves up to God as a living sacrifice. Now, a sacrifice, you don't put it on the altar and then go, but I want that part, and I want that part, and I like that part also. That's not, well, that's chintzy, okay? It, it's kind of like going into a restaurant and seeing the tip jar and going, well, you know what, I want to put a tip in. That'd be really nice. I'll put a tip in. And then you go, huh, I put in a five. I really meant to put in a quarter. I'll just grab that back out and I'll make change from this. They're not going to respond real well to that, but that's so often how we treat God. We want to give them nice little parts. I'll give them my Sunday nights. And, you know, I'm missing a Packers game right now, so that counts even double. I'm missing a Packers game right now. (laughs) It better count double. (laughs) But he doesn't want that. He doesn't want just a little. He wants it all. He doesn't want 50%. He wants all of us to be consumed like a living sacrifice. Now, sometimes 10% is all you have to give because there's nothing left. You know what? At that time, 10% is 100%. When you've been run down and beat down because of life, and you're like, I can't give him 100% right now. Well, maybe your 100% is really just 10%. But that's the exception to the rule. The majority of the time, it's like we go, hey, God, you know, you want to tithe. I'll give you 10%, now leave the rest of it alone. I'll give you one day a week. Now leave the rest of it alone. We do it over and over and over again. So I'm going to let you listen to a segment of a podcast. The podcast is called To the Best of Our Knowledge. It's done by Wisconsin Public Radio, which means part of your tax dollars go to contribute to it. Um, I don't know how much because I also know that public radio gets money from other sources. Uh, This is Wisconsin. This is not national public radio. But they, they did this segment Uh, on democracy, and I don't entirely know how these questions fit into democracy, but I love these questions. (laughs) And the questions were this. What would you live for? What would you die for? What would you kill for? So here's a segment of uh, the, the interviews that this lady did. Okay, that's not a segment. (laughs) Hold on just a second. (laughs) Apparently it's not going to work. Are we good? Sorry, guys. I can barely hear it there, but apparently it's not going to give it. But she asked these people these questions, and they answered over and over and over and over again. You know, what would uh, what would you live for? What would you die for? And what would you kill for? And what consistently happened was that they determined 
of the people doing this, said these two were the hardest things for them to answer. Uh, the two that I'm circling right now. The, what would you die for and what would you kill for? Which I think is stupid. I think it's baloney. Not because, because I think that uh, you dying for something or you killing for something should be you know, a stupid decision. But these are one decision. Yeah, what, you know, what would I die for? Well, hopefully, if someone came in here and did something, I would die to protect you guys and my family. But that's just one decision at that time. I think the real question comes down to this one because it summarizes everything. What would you live for? But so often what people treat it as is what helps me to make it through a really, really tough time period. What I mean is this. Uh, The first marathon I ran uh, was the Green Bay Marathon. And, and I train really well for a half marathon, but I am a lousy trainer for a full marathon. What that means is when I hit mile 20, which is affectionately known as the wall, it really is the wall for me. You can look at my times and I, I'm doing just really great, just really great. And when I hit mile 20, it's like somebody has just decided to give me 50 pound bags of sand. And when I hit mile 25, I started bawling. <laughs> Just crying. I'm not a crier. Okay, I've told you the story. I hooked myself while fishing with, with Adam a while back. And it's the only time in my life I ever had to take the hook and push it all the way through. And I ho- pushed it all the way through the skin, cut it off. And Adam and I continued fishing for a while. It was really good fishing at that time, okay? <laughs> you don't leave. I didn't cry at that point. Just I don't cry a lot. I, I think I cried during uh, the birth of both of our children. I didn't cry during during my wedding because Pam would not look me in the eyes because she was scared she would lose it and start crying. I thought my wife was ticked at me literally during the wedding ceremony. <laughs> it was kind of funny. But guys, during that marathon, I just lost it because it's just like, blah, blah. And the only thing I could think of was, I just want to stop. I just want to stop. I just want to stop. And what came to me was, if I stop, I'll never be able to look my kids in the eyes again and say, you can do whatever you work on. I'll never be able to look my my kids in the eye and say, if you work hard enough and you strive hard enough, you're going to be able to do this. So I'm finishing this stupid race so that I can uh, can look my kids in the face. And if you look at the photo from that time, literally when I saw them on the track, I was like, get on here and you're finishing with me because the only reason I made it was because of you. So often we treat what would you live for like that. What helps me just to keep on going when it's a really tough time? But I don't think that's what it means to say, what would you live for? It's different. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. Uh, by the way, there's a group reading through Mere Christianity right now. If you're interested, I think they'd be a really good group to start up again because we're going to finish in two weeks. But he says, that is why the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in showing them all back, uh, shoving them all back and listening to the other voice, taking that other point of view, letting the other larger, stronger, quiet life come flowing in. In other words, it comes down to when you wake up in the morning and you start to get out of bed, who do you belong to? whose image is placed upon you because every decision of our day should be determined by who do I belong to? I think the harder question is what do you live for because that should affect 
every decision we make. Every decision we make. Not just the biggies, like what am I going to do with my life? Not just the biggies on should I move? Not just the biggies on should I change careers? But every decision of our life. Because when it comes down to it, Jesus says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Why? Because God's image is stamped on our lives. If we belong to him, it means we belong to him. Not just a small part that we give to him just so he'll shut up. But all of us. And that's something that comes about by us deciding when our bedhead is still there. That we are going to follow him no matter what. Realizing that we have choices that we are going to make that day. And those choices are going to show who we are following and what direction we are going See, I think sometimes we mistakenly think Christianity is about making one or two big decisions. Christianity is about one big decision that affects all the little decisions. It's about saying yes to God who's saying, I want your life. I have given my life for you. Now follow me. And that one big decision affects every small decision after it. Over and over and over and over again. We say Jesus is Lord and we give him our lives and he gladly accepts it. But then over and over again every morning, we have to say Jesus is Lord. Not out of fear of losing our salvation. He would never turn his back on us. But because of the fact that every day he still gives us the choice to decide whether or not we're going to follow through on the fact that he has placed his image on us. So before I end, does anybody have anything that needs to be added? I'm going to tell you how to use it in just a second. Anybody? Okay. I think it's a great discussion for us to go, hey, Jesus meant Caesar's image is on this coin, and whose image is on you? But realistically, if it doesn't affect our lives, then I don't know that we've really read God's word. Jesus wrote this wonderful stuff, not just to be literature. I say Jesus. Jesus did not write actually a single word other than maybe drawing airplane designs. (laughs) Uh, Jesus inspired these, these people to write his word. And I think it comes down to affecting our lives over and over again. There's a reason that uh, Timothy says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut through bone and marrow. Uh, You don't just place a sword on the wall, you use it. So therefore, this is Pam and I's China. We may be one of the few families in the world that uses our China a lot. See, some people think that China means it's special and it should only be used on special occasions. But my wife has this wonderful mindset that because it's special, any occasion we use it is suddenly special. Which means that there have been glazed donuts that have been served on our China. Why? Because this makes it special. Realistically, it's just plates. If you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, I talk about the wedding ring and say how, yes, it's gold, and yes, there's, there are uh, diamonds and such on it. But realistically, the only thing that makes it special is the promises that these individuals make. 
See, the only reason this china is special is because it was part of our wedding. Truthfully, it was part of, of, uh, of Pam's parents' wedding before that because we got her parents' china and then we completed it. China should be used. Your image should be used. The fact that he stamped his image on you in creation, that he said, this one will look like me, should cause us to live like him every day. So I think the simple instructions are what Jesus said. See, sometimes we treat this as like this is some nice little answer that doesn't really give us direction. But when he said that the first commandment, the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and the second is like it, he gave us very, very, very specific directions. And if you think about whose image is on loving your neighbor as yourself, you suddenly realize why it's connected with the first one. Because if I look at Drew and I see the image of God on him, how can I not respond to him in love and say that I love the Lord to God, the Lord, love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and all my might? So my instructions are just simply this. Tomorrow, look for lots and lots and lots of small and medium size and big size ways that you can display the image of God that has been stamped on you by showing your love for God by loving those around you. And don't take some stupid, wimpy little definition of love as some weird feeling and instead turn it into sacrifice because I think that's what Jesus taught us love was by his own example. Sacrificing for the person who does not deserve it Sacrificing for the person who has just abused you by cutting in front of you while you're driving? Yes, I have some issues with that. Sacrificing for the person who knew that you were in line and somehow or another they cut in front of you? Sacrificing for the person who cannot pay for themselves? Sacrificing for the the weak? Sacrificing for the strong? Because the image of God, well, that's been created in them. And more importantly than that, it's on you. And you know it. Render unto unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God what is God's. So this week, let's live like we belong to God. Would you pray with me? Father, please forgive me for the times that I I have not lived as though your image is stamped on me. Please forgive me for the times that I have displayed your image to other people in an unworthy manner. Because I often forget that your image is stamped on me and I have lived in ways that do not reflect your image well. So please forgive me for those times. But more importantly, 
help me now because of that forgiveness to live in light of the image that you have stamped on me. Help me to live in such a way that I display your image perfectly. Help me to live in such a way that you would be proud to have your image stamped on me. Because I believe with all my heart that I belong to you. Pray this in your son's name who used a test to preach a message to those around him. While they were amazed, so many of them never turned to him and trust in him. I pray this in his name because I am amazed and I do trust in him. Amen. Guys, let's sing together. If you need someone to pray with, I'll be in the back.